choice is brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's noon on the first Monday of the month, so it's book choice on Fine Music Radio right here in the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor. And I'm Matabataba, what are you calling me? <laughs> I'm well, and you're looking rather good, Matabataba. Thank you. <laughs> haven't got your little cap on, though. Uh, no. <laughs> Melvin Minar is Delightfully Satellite by Leonard Cohen's The Flame. Cindy Moritz finds John Boyle's A Ladder to the Sky deliciously dark and satisfying. John Hanks journeys through Ian Glenn's The First Safari, searching for Francois Lebrun, and which is an account of South Africa's first and perhaps greatest ever murder. Leslie Beek brings us a dystopian teen novel and a South African story for younger readers. Brownie Chisholm chats about her delightfully titled One Night Only, her debut novel, that's a fun and flirty take on the romantic doings of 33-year-old Sarah Trafford. Philip Todris talks to Jay Pazer, co-editor with Catherine Bull, on Acts of Transgression, contemporary live art in South Africa, a wonderful, informative and accessible book, Philip says, with some excellent photographs to add to the treat. Peter Soule takes on two local stalwarts in The Independence Factor by Dennis Worrell and Graham Viney's The Last Hurrah, South Africa at the Royal Tour of 1947. Vanessa Levenstein takes a delightful trip around the Cape via Around the Cape in 80 Ways, compiled and edited by Gabriel and Louise Atheros. Finally, if Mantabataba finds the time, we've a pre-recording of Rodney Trudgeon's chat. Melvin Minard, did Leonard Cohen set you aflame? The Dark Poets' last album fired up the world in which writers and singers die, but these songs live on. The final paradox of superior and blessed talent. When Leonard Cohen's 14th studio album was released in mid-October 2016, his quiet, painful death of an 82-year-old man was near. A few days later, on November the 7th, a legendary career ended. The hearts of thousands of Cohen fans, and who haven't been, raced as the final curtain came down in their minds, while Jukebox played some of his last words. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker? We kill the flame. The title of this, the last album, You Want It Darker, and many of the compelling lyrics are bold statements about dying. Not melancholic musings, but lyrical challenging complaints of and a long life in words and music, a true requiem of our time. The Flame, a beautifully produced book in proper reverence to the late great Canadian singer-writer, is a compilation of his last poems, lyrics, notes and funky self-portrait drawings. Its crispy presence in one's hands feels valuable, treasurable, and a perfect accompaniment to any of those 14 albums which started with Songs of Leonard Cohen in 1967, where both legendary muses Suzanne and Marianne made their presences known. 
The flame was Cohn's own last project, a kind of final document of the life of a poet who, as he told audiences, also learned a few chords from a nameless Spanish guitarist and whose amber baritone would evoke the all-too-elusive desires, passions and simple romances of his fans over decades. He didn't finish the whole book, but his son Adam, in association with knowledgeable expert friends, completed it. The result is a publication that reads as the final statement planned by Cohen, a kind of intense personal exposure, honest, direct and lyrical. Lyrical is a key description for Cohen's writings, for the music is never far. And lyrics require the spark of instant connection with listeners to sweep them along. In other words, Cohen's poetry doesn't hide behind convoluted metaphors or outlandish wordplay. It hits the spot, even if the references take on a surreal edge, or the similes sparkle with curious, shocking oddities. If there are surprises in the lines as they rustle their rhyming rhythm, we listeners feel instinctively where they lead to, how they roll, how honesty is spelled out. There are plenty of those rhymes and crisp paragraphs to indulge in in this substantial volume. It's a book to dip into as the music plays, but also one to open to any page and take up a remarkable upbeat series of sentences neatly pitched to earthly truths about life. The anthology is divided into various sections, the first being 63 poems Cohen considered as his best for a final summing up. They are the lyrics of the last four albums, each getting increasingly darker as his final years rolled out. Then there are bits and pieces of notebooks, snippets of scribblings that, according to the young Cohen, his father left all over the place over the years of his life. And perhaps to add a quirky touch of dark humor, they are the cartoonish self-portrait drawings. Most poignantly is the inclusion of a last email correspondence with his friend, the 90-year-old poet Peter Scott, and the speech he made in 2011 when he received the Prince of Asturias' award from Spain. The latter included this line, and I quote, If one is to express the great inevitable defeat that awaits us all, it must be done within the strict confines of dignity and beauty. The flame is all and more testimony of that and the great Leonard Cohn's life and talent. Feel the moving like they do 
one especially for Melvin Mina it's called Dance Me to the End of Love by Leonard Cohen I hope he's listening <laughs> and the next time um, I'd like to dance with you Matabata may I have the next dance of course no problem Cindy Moritz a John Boyne it's called A Ladder to the Sky how gorgeous John Boyne is among my favorite authors with his popular Boy in the Striped Pajamas and more recent Hearts Invisible Furies being some of the best books I've read So I approached A Ladder to the Sky with trepidation, as one doesn't want to be let down, and the blurb revealed quite different style and content from his previous work. The Washington Post book critic Ron Charles called A Ladder to the Sky a satire of writerly ambition wrapped in a psychological thriller. I found it disturbing yet compelling reading. It revolves around Maurice Swift, a repulsive yet apparently good-looking character who commits selfish acts to further his writing career without consideration of the consequences. We start with a section that could be a standalone novella, where 19-year-old Maurice, working as a waiter in Berlin, meets award-winning, established 65-year-old author Eric Ackerman, on whom he practices his deceitful and manipulative ways. Eric is taken in by Maurice's apparent interest and before long has revealed personal information about his boyhood in Nazi Germany that has haunted him all his life. Needless to say, Maurice is not above doing what it takes to get a foot into the literary world and here we get a first inkling of just how far he's prepared to go. Maurice is convinced that stories are there to be told, no matter their origin. Throughout his life, he partakes in various forms of literary theft. The questions that snake through the book are, 
Are there any new stories? And can you own a story? Who gets to tell other people's stories? Perhaps the most entertaining section of the book is where author John Boyne tells a story that may not be his to tell, but oh, he does it so well. It's where Maurice, who has by now latched onto another successful writer, is a guest at the Italian villa of Gore Vidal and his longtime partner Howard. It's told from Vidal's perspective, and the writer actually takes you there in his account. It reinforces the horrid character of Maurice while supplying a gorgeous backdrop populated by fascinating people. Beyond entertaining us, Vanity Fair magazine writer Kezia Weir observes that to successfully incorporate any historical figure into a work of fiction is difficult. To choose a man so particularly known for his scathing wit has the potential for disaster. But Boyne, a well-versed Vidal enthusiast, pitch-perfectly captures the man. The sections that follow, each able to stand as stories on their own but linked by the life of Maurice, reveal, as he gets older, the growing desperation and diminishing conscience of our protagonist. Putting a ladder to the sky is a metaphor for ambition. It also means that should there be a fall from grace, it will be a long one. This book expertly explores what happens when ambition turns sour and more frighteningly when it is neither noticed nor reproached. According to the Washington Post critic Ron Charles, A Ladder to the Sky reminds us that fine literature is often the only opportunity we have to spend quality time with truly ghastly people. Boyne has certainly given us this option in spades and one leaves feeling slightly grimy, a bit bemused and definitely enlightened, which after all is the function of good literature. I'm happy to say that the author did not disappoint. Thank you, Cindy. And, Corey, what's our competition question? Well, I'm not going to tell you because you might win it. <laughs> and here's our easy-peasy competition question. To win one of two 250 rand vouchers from Wordsworth Books. In ten days' time, it's February the 14th, when we celebrate, well, is it Valentine's Day or do we celebrate Enid Blyton's birthday? We're waiting for your answers on 021 401 1013. Ian Glenn is the author of The First Safari, Searching for Francois Le Vénant, a most enjoyable read which I know will appeal enormously not just to those who are looking for new South African literature, but particularly to ornithologists who might not be aware, but certainly should be, of Le Vénant's major contribution to naming, identifying and writing the first account of African bird songs and his wonderfully intriguing observations, hypotheses and conjectures on bird behaviour. I must compliment Ian Glenn for being such an incredibly persistent archival researcher in unravelling the real story of Levelon's travels in Africa and his unrelenting search for the specimens he collected and moved to Europe, and above all, for his pursuit of all Levedon's original field notebooks, which mysteriously have still not been found. The word safari in the title of the book comes from the Swahili word for a journey, originally to remote places. Today, the word has connotations still linked to travel to the wilder parts of Africa, 
but now armed mostly with cameras and binoculars and not rifles, ideally leaving the participants transformed by the experience. Safaris, says Glenn, and I quote, like great buildings, natural wonders, works of art, literature and music, and are on the bucket list for good reason. But back in 1781, when the Vaillant undertook his first safari, it was a very different world. There were, of course, no maps of the interior of the continent, and travel required weeks of careful and thorough preparation, which Le Vaillant has told in detail in his 1789 book entitled Travels, in which he describes himself as a naturalist and a man of letters. The book rightly became a classic, the start of a new genre of a mix of exciting adventures with dangerous animals, travel to remote and unknown areas, and for the first time, serious intellectual investigations and critiques of colonialism as practiced by the frontier farmers in the Cape. His social and cultural records and commentaries can justifiably accord him the credit of being the first African anthropologist. Ian Glenn has presented a convincing case for defending the Valon's credibility as a social commentator, equating him to what today would be regarded favourably as a good investigative reporter and justifiably critical of the Anglophone ethnocentrism's questions on the Valon's negative accounts of serious exploitation of indigenous communities by the early settlers. As part of Glenn's commitment to trace the route of the first safaris, he travelled extensively in South Africa to locate the site of illustrations and places where specimens were collected, as portrayed in the fascinating King's Map at the back of the book, but noting that it's almost impossible to recreate a path of the early explorers when travelling in the comfort and security of a car. He concluded that perhaps a mountain bike trek would be the answer, the Le Vaillant Cape Epic, does have a certain ring to it. The title again of this account of South Africa's first and perhaps greatest ever birder is The First Safari, Searching for Francois Le Vaillant. It's written by Ian Glenn and is published by Jakarna Media and is worth every cent of its price of 260 rand. Leslie Beek, a dystopian tea novel and a South African story for younger readers. I'm not normally a fan of dystopian teen novels. Who, after all, can keep coming up with something new, something worse? Reality seems bad enough now to those who thrilled to John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids and other books from the 50s, when it was all in the imagination. It was never going to happen. But the reality of being a teenager is something that does concern me on a daily basis. And the chilling fact is that what was once the realm of fantasists is rapidly becoming the realm of newsreaders. That is what makes The Survival Game by Nikki Singer so gripping and shocking. It could happen now. A girl called Mari, a boy who does not speak, a world of too many people, convulsions in Africa that set the people walking, walking, and others with guns, hunting barriers, barricades, and the worst of them, ignorance and fear. Regulations and papers leaving an electronic trace wherever they have been, and Mari somehow walks on from Equator Central towards hoped-for sanctuary with her grandmother on the Isle of Arran in Scotland. It is impossible to reveal more of the story without giving the plot away, 
detail by incremental detail, backwards and forwards in memories and happenings. We follow Mari through her story with the boy who does not speak. It is riveting. Once you begin, it's impossible to stop. Somewhere about halfway through any good book, an experienced reader starts to wonder about the ending. Will the writer pull it off? How will the writer pull it off? I was distinctly uneasy as the pages thinned towards the end and shattered by an ending that was the only possible one, given the careful, meticulous, unremitting building of the story. Highly recommended for the thinking kind of teenager. For a South African story for younger children, try The Singing Stone by Wendy Hartman, illustrated by Chantelle and Bergen Thorne. It is truly a beautiful tale, set in a simple West Country fishing village, where a girl called Storm learns to sing the stories of the starfish, the albatross, and the whales, when she wears a special stone in a little bag around her neck. Her older fisherman brothers warned her never to go beyond the end of the bay, but of course Storm does, or this wouldn't be a proper story. There she is tempted by a bird woman to sing stories that will bring danger to the one Storm loves the best, her fisherman brothers. The stone cracks. The boats fail to come home. She took out the stone and touched the cracks. She held it gently in her hand, turned towards the sea and started to say a prayer, a prayer of love and trust. There were words of warmth and words about the light of lanterns kept burning in windows. Her words stretched out like a silver thread, and the wind stirred. Storm waited until she heard the village people shout. She had brought the fisherman safe home. The Survival Game by Nikki Singer was published by Hodder and Stoughton in 2018. The Singing Stone, written by Wendy Hartman and illustrated by Chantelle and Bergen Thorne, by Jakana, also in 2018. And here again is our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 250 rand vouchers for Wordsworth Books. In ten days' time, it's February the 14th, when we celebrate, well, what do we celebrate? Do we celebrate Valentine's Day? Do we celebrate Enid Blyton's birthday? We're waiting for your clever answers. 021 401 1013. Brian Chisholm, let's chat about your debut novel. It's called One Night Only. You've a degree in pharmacy from Rhodes. You work as an information pharmacist at UCT's Medical Information Centre and at National HIV and TB Hotline. On top of all of that, and writing your book, you're also studying for a postgraduate diploma in HIV and TB management. Sure. <laughs> you are exceptional. And all the more so because you're a quadriplegic, which is why we're talking to you down the line. We weren't sure whether your wheelchair, I think you said it was 60 centimetres, whether your wheelchair would negotiate all the nooks and crannies of FMR. Do you have the use, Brownie, of your fingers, or how do you write? No, I don't have the use of my fingers. I've got the use of my arms and my wrists, but not my fingers. 
so I write with a very cleverly designed little strap that my mother made after my accident 20 years ago that slips a pen into it and I use that to type with and I probably typed faster than I did as a student before I had my accident just with my little pen now than I did before yeah humans are very clever at adapting to whatever's thrown at them so yes that's how I type it was a car accident, wasn't it, when you were yes, 21? Yeah, it was a car accident 22 years ago. 22 years ago, sure. Yes. And if you type just with a pen, is that sort of single-letter typing? I mean, It's single-letter typing, yes, but it's surprisingly fast. <laughs> well, clever young you. And Brownie, One Night Only is an intriguing title. Yes. The book went through various different titles while I edited it, but One Night Only, while it sounds a little bit unsalubrious really was the only one that stuck out because it well that describes Sarah doesn't it yes exactly so it fits the storyline of Sarah who has sworn off long term relationships after her last one failed after finding her boyfriend with her cousin and she swears off long term relationships and decides to do one night only dating (laughs) for a while which involves various liaisons with people from work and people she's met through friends and some internet dating. Well, that was with Fred, wasn't it? It was the internet with Fred? Fred was the the friend of a friend. (laughs) And I must say, Brownie, I laughed, I think it's on page 36, I laughed out loud, and please don't tell listeners (laughs) the story, but I laughed out loud when we meet Fred's mum. Yes, I enjoyed that whole scene. It It was a fun one. (laughs) <laughs> and also Fred's mum, very different to um, Sarah's mum. Yes, there uh, are many very different characters throughout the book. Well, I think you've been really extraordinarily clever with them. And, um, you know, Sarah leads us straight into the story. I mean, she dives into the pool, anyway, dives us straight into the story. And, you know, you have a cast of wholly believable characters. Who did you love the most? Who did you enjoy writing about the most? That's a difficult question to answer because I loved and hated all of them at various stages through the writing and the editing. But I think if I had to choose one or choose a couple, because I can't really choose one, I think probably the side characters, the ones that kind of floated in and then floated out, some of them were fairly ludicrous and I quite loved those. And my favourite probably is the guy that she lands up with, which I can't say who that is. No, don't. Spoil the story. (laughs) I, I like Bran. Oh, that was yeah. uh, Emily's husband. Yes, he's lovely, isn't he? And he always made the house smell so good, roasting lamp or lamb, yes. roasting lamb <laughs> with rosemary. But you've got that whole family, you know, your, your atmosphere, the things you create there. So it's great fun and uh, well done you. And are you plotting a second novel? I am. I actually have a very, very rough first draft of a next one which is entirely different from One Night Only. One Night Only is fairly frivolous and fun. And this one is slightly, well, quite a lot darker, still set in Cape Town, this time in suburbia, not in the City Bowl. And it's a lot darker. So I'm hoping to have enough time between my studies and my working this year to edit it at least to a point that it's ready for submission. Sure. Well, I think I think you're absolutely amazing. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And... Um, now, we're talking to you down the line, as I said, we weren't sure if your wheelchair could fit. Are you holding the telephone? Yes, I am. I am. How? Again, it's just, I'm, I'm just holding it against my head <laughs> with my hand. 
Well, I think think you're absolutely really and truly amazing and a wonderful book. song played by Len Ritchie with the Johnny Miller Orchestra. Don't you want to dance to this one? You were were dancing so beautifully on your own, actually. (laughs) Didn't dare join in. And Philip Saunders, you chat to co-author of Acts of Transgression, and his name is Joy Paver. Acts of Transgression, Contemporary Live Art in South Africa, edited by Jay Pather and Catherine Bull. It's published by Fitz University Press. Now, I was so keen to get this book that I actually got it in electronic book form before its official launch on the 16th of February. So, Jay, I just want you to know how impressed I am by the work you've been doing, and it goes back a long time from when I first saw your performance piece called The Kitchen way back in 2004. So it's a long thing, and I thought uh, Fire Music Radio listeners would want to know about the book that's about to be launched, Acts of Transgression. Why the name Acts of Transgression? Well, I think the idea that live art or performance art is always 
meant to be transgressive. It is um, it transgresses rules. I think that is by definition its raison d'etre, its uh, reason for being. Um, it breaks rules and it pushes boundaries. So as a form, it is interdisciplinary. So it combines elements of theatre, maybe or dance or sound or architecture or fine art, sculpture, whatever it is, or anything that's to do with advanced technology or anything interactive with the audience. But it pushes certain boundaries, which is where meaning is made, where you are not going to the theatre expecting your normal, regular experience. And in that pushing of the boundary, new meaning is made and new ideas are created. But it is also the transgressive nature is also to play on how, you know, what we are noticing at the Institute for Creative Arts, this burgeoning of live art in this country in the last, say, eight years, eight to ten years. I mean, of course, there, you know, live art was present in this country for centuries in various forms. But in the last ten years, let's say, with the advent of things like roads must fall, fees must fall, and these these kinds of movements in our society, troubling our society and creating a vehicle for the undertow, the underneath of this country to come through. As we know, in 1994, we had this fabulous rainbow nation, but it did not solve, let's say, 90% of the country's problems, especially its economic uh, inequities. And I think as a result of that, a certain level of psychic distension has occurred, which I think we see the results of, and this is by no means an excuse, but we can see the results of that in the high rates of crime, the high degrees of violence in our communities. So what I think that uh, what has happened in the last 10 years is these explosions have literally come through the pavement in in all these uh, civil protests and in of course in these student movements so with this crisis comes a way of looking that is immediate and urgent it has to do with the body it has to do with something visceral so the performance art the live art is becoming a lot more uncompromising, let us say. It is not all sweet. it's very effective in ways of telling people a very potent story. Correct. And, like and, and that's, the, that's how the transgressive nature of the live art meets the transgressive nature of our society. And it's also generally done in public spaces as opposed to theatre spaces or more formal spaces. Yeah, uh, yes and no. I think that the performance art, I mean, I think when in our live art festivals, for example, we've been trying to do some work in smaller, intimate spaces because some of them are quite quite radical and we <laughs> we don't always want to scare an entire group of people, but it moves from, from private to public spaces. And the other thing I think that comes through very powerfully is the as you say transformative not only transgressive but the transformative aspect that looks at the now and the past and all different ways of seeing things I know that uh, that's really wonderful that you say so because in that transgression in any act of transgression is the potential for transformation absolutely and I think as you also point out dealing with this whole concept of decolonization, and that is one of the aspects that certainly does come through as you break down silos and boundaries. And what, the only thing I just want you to mention briefly is, as a book, it takes an ephemeral form and gives a bit of substance to it and, 
and records what has been happening. And that's another aspect, I suppose, which is another interview about how the book actually and how artists take a live form and also create an art form out of it so people can look at it and see, which makes those pictures and the visual content of the book so amazingly um, amazing. That's the word I think you'd want to use. And also the way you've broken it up into four different sections and having lots of people address these issues, some artists, some um, performers, some people commenting on that art form. So we've been speaking to Jay Pather about a remarkable book called Acts of Transgression, Contemporary Live Art in South Africa. As mentioned before, it's actually going to be officially launched on the 16th of February, and I'm dying to pick up a copy and have a real book in my hands. Which you can all have, as Philip says, on February the 16th, it's uh, 6 p.m. at the Heading Hall. Peter So, you took on two local stalwarts, Dennis Worrell and Graham Viney. I have two books for review this month, both of which are of general interest and both will be of particular interest to followers of political developments in South Africa. The first is the memoir of Dennis Worrell, touching on his personal journey through politics and diplomacy. It's entitled The Independent Factor, and readers will find it difficult to put down. Worrell is a colourful, if not controversial, individual, and with his moving around, made few enemies. It was interesting to note how he slipped seamlessly from the progressives to the nationalist, and then to the independents, and lastly to the Democratic Party, without acquiring the label of party hopper, as his friend Yapi Basson did during his political career. His time as an ambassador in London brought out the best in him, and he would have reached dizzy heights had he chosen to make a career of diplomacy. The London Times described him as a persuasive advocate, brilliant debater, and acknowledged student of international affairs. Towards the end of 1986, he was finding it difficult to defend government policy. So on a visit to South Africa towards the end of the year, he contacted Colin Eglin, invited him to meet him at the Holiday Inn in Johannesburg. The two of them discussed many things, including the PFP seats, and in the end it was decided Worrell should stand as an independent and the PFP would not oppose him. In this book, Worrell writes he does not recall the meeting taking place at the hotel. It is unfortunate he did not raise these doubts when Eglin's memoir was published in 2007. Eglin died at the end of 2013, and misunderstandings could have been sorted out. But because he believed he had a role to play in South African political life, he resigned as ambassador in London, a much sought-after position in our diplomatic life, to return to the rough-and-tumble of politics back home. With Yanni Momberg and David Gant, and also with tremendous support from Waddle's wife, Anita, they put together a formidable election team that led Chris Hiennes and the Helderberg Nats a merry dance, coming within 39 votes of taking the seat away from them. Waddle went on to lead the Independent Party, and he led it into a merger with the PFP and Vanant Milan's National Democratic Movement, and he, Milan, and Zach de Beer were elected three leaders. He was elected to Parliament in 1989 and as the member for Durban Berea, but did not stand in the 94 election, retiring and returning to business. The Independent Factor is an easy and interesting read 
which will appeal particularly to those interested in developments of the South African political life, and it is strongly recommended. My second book deals with an historical incident in the life of South Africa and covers the visit of the royal family for three months in early 1947. The book is The Last Hurrah by Graham Viney, published by Jonathan Ball. South Africa welcomed King George VI and Queen Elizabeth and their two daughters, Princesses Elizabeth and Margaret, both of whom were pining for the men they loved. Elizabeth and Prince Philip were to marry in November later that year, and Margaret and her fated lover, Peter Townsend, the romance which ended in tears. On the morning of February the 17th, HMS Vanguard, the largest battleship ever built at that time, slowly moved forward to the newly completed Duncan Dock. Amongst the welcoming party were the Governor-General and General Smuts. Smuts had spent long periods in London during the recently completed World War, and the King had become very fond of him. It was a joyous reunion when they shook hands on meeting one another. The crowd was in full throat, and the drive up Adley Street was a triumph. One of the first events was the opening of Parliament by the King, the first time a Dominion legislature had ever been opened by the reigning monarch. It was a grand occasion, and went off as planned. It was one of the events which had caused controversy in its planning. There was resistance initially by black and Indian nationalists, and throughout the tour from Afrikaner nationalists. A year later, in 1948, Smuts's government was defeated in a general election by the Afrikaner nationalists, led by Dr. D. F. Malon. But the tour had been a last hurrah, a show of empire solidarity and recognition of South Africa's contribution to the Allied cause during the Second World War, and specifically that of Prime Minister Jan Smuts. This book is of great interest to those familiar with our history and is recommended. What a day this has been What a rare mood I'm in Well, it's almost like being in love There's a smile on my face For the whole human race Well, it's almost like being in love All the music of life seems to be Like a bell that is ringing for me and from the way that I feel When that bell starts to peel I could swear I was falling Swear I was falling It's almost like being in love
music of life seems to be like a bell that is ringing for me. And from the way that I feel when that bell starts to peal, I could swear I was falling. I swear I was falling. It's almost like being in love. Almost like being in love, sung by Gavin Minton. Corey. And very romantically sung. And Vanessa, Vanessa Levenstein, you took trips around the Cape in 80 ways. Well, did you know that under the brass and bling of the Board of Executors building in the CBD, there's the Siobhan Battery Museum? Do you know the sad stories of the many shipwrecks around our coast? Have you seen or heard the ghostly horse and rider at the Takai Manor? all this and much, much more in Around the Cape in 80 Ways. And you choose. You can buy the book and explore, or you could take a tour with Peter Patoot Tours. Around the Cape in 80 Ways is compiled and edited by Gabriel and Louise Atheros, and you'll recognise many of its historical writers. The Marie Celeste is the most famous phantom ship, but you'll read excerpts from ship's logbooks about other sightings. Peter could drive you to Hot Bay with its manganese mine and timber usefulness, or take a wild swing to Woodstock for a good look at the Woodstock Destructor, or see the kiln at the French Redoubt. Perhaps you have very welcome visitors. You really, really can't do better than this informative and delightful, well-illustrated book with its 80 historical tales. Actually, you can do better. You could take a tour with Peter Patoot and go around the Cape in 80 ways. You can go almost anywhere with the knowledgeable Peter Patoot. From the Winelands to the West Coast and Garden Route. Call 021-709-0415 or 082-896-0025 or go online to aroundthecape.coza.
Fleur played on saxophone by Mike Lutz. And uh, I think we have time for one more. Oh, good. So it's, it's Rodney. And here's um, a pre record of Rodney Trudgeon talking to one of the right girls. A really fascinating book has just been released and published called In Dire Straits, written by, listen to this, the right girls. Right spelt W R I T E. So this is a group of ladies who have got together to write a book inspired, if that's the right word, by the terrible drought we have just had in Cape Town. And I think I can safely say leading the group of the right girls is Priscilla Holmes, who is with me in the studio. Priscilla, tell me a little bit about the right girls, because it seems odd that you can get a group of, what, seven or eight people to write one book. Yes, Rodney, we're so often asked how six women can write a book together, it must be impossible. Well, our writing group, The Right Girls, has proved it can and does work. Um, The Right Girls have written four books together, and our latest novel, In Dire Straits, which was launched just before Christmas, is selling well and will soon be available in major bookshops. Um, It was about two years ago that we first began writing this novel about uh, a negated estate in Cape Town and how the residents were coping with the restricted water um, because of the drought. Mm -hmm. And, of course, with day zero approaching fast, uh, when all the taps were going to be turned off, there was endless uh, worry and uh, intrigue and Mm, and annoyance. as well. So what we structured was a fast-moving novel involving love, hate and betrayal behind the rose bushes <laughs> but then we heard about the tunnels the tunnels which run from table mountain right under the city carrying millions of liters of water out straight out into the ocean wasted well over three million liters a day just pouring out to sea every single day why did you so did you decide now that the tunnels were going to be a kind of integral part of all this because i know there was a drama that you were about to tell us and there have been they noted for tours you can go on tours of these tunnels not anymore rodney (laughs) not after what happened no well we actually um if you sit in the traffic uh, during Cape Town's busy rush hour, it's hard to believe that running underneath you, underneath the city, are hundreds of kilometres of underground brick tunnels. Um, they were built by the Dutch as far back as 1652, and they captured the fresh, pure mountain water and brought it down to the city where it was used in the company gardens and, of course, for those romantic clipper ships that were sailing <laughs> yeah. off to, to the East Indies and Australia. It all sounded so romantic and intriguing we just have to had to bring the tunnel story into our book and of course because there were tunnel tours appear uh, from going down from the castle we decided to go down and see for ourselves what was happening in these almost forgotten places creepily we had predicted a happening 
in the tunnels for our book, but what awaited us down there was a stranger-than-fiction experience of nightmare proportions, a horrifying near-death experience. But, of course, you will have to read the book to learn all about that. Okay. <laughs> but I think, Priscilla, we can say that you were six of you down there and also virtually in the dark, and you said, I, I want you to just give a little bit away, and I know one needs to read the book, but you were caught in a massive flood, weren't you, basically? Uh, it was a massive flood. Um, probably and completely unexpected. Quite unexpected. Um, we were assured before we went down that um, there was going to be no problem, even though there'd been a massive rainstorm two days or a day before, and so it was not expected at all. So we went down in all good faith that we yes. were going to be safe. And then look what happened. And you need to read the book for that because it really is drama that I don't think you could have made up. Uh, no, it's this definitely is, this is real drama. Definitely stranger than fiction. <laughs> definitely, it was um, something which I think n none of us will ever forget. It's made a huge impact on all our lives, uh, particularly some of the girls who really were badly injured, and they have now stopped the tunnels. Uh, the tunnel tours oh, from going they? on okay, okay. unfortunately because of course it's it is a very interesting part of cape town's history <laughs> i'm not sure about <laughs> that but um how have you structured the book then with six writers what, what what can we expect when we read this book well we each have a character if i could just explain that we're now a brand really we we've we come from very diverse backgrounds and cultures different countries and different age groups and we share a burning desire to write mm -hmm. uh, we're democratic if we dis disagree we put it to the vote and we don't argue so we've bonded in a very unique way and we treat our writing like a job a new book means it's rather like a, a military operation we we plot up and plan we step into another world we are given or we choose characters that suit our personalities really and above all we respect one another's writing we all write with different voices and we create something very special with this book we've discovered that truth is often more unreal than fiction it sounds like it but does it have a narrative sort of feel to oh it? yes there's lots of chatting and there's um the six characters are all very different right. um and they're all um quite feisty some of them more feisty than others and they all look at this drought um in a different way mm -hmm. some believe it's a, a, just a nuisance and they won't conform and they keep on using water the way they always have others they will try and they want to make a difference and the water warriors of Cape Town really yes. kind of grew out of this drought didn't they Indeed I mean they did so the book is called in dire straits and it's written by the right girls remember I said right is spelled w-r-i-t-e it's your fourth or fifth book isn't it together? it's our fourth book yes. and sounds like a riveting novel someone said at last something good to come out of the Cape Town water crisis yes. so it's something well worth reading I was talking to Priscilla Holmes of the right girls and as I say the book is called in dire straits it should be out on the shelves in the course of this month Yeah, very interesting, and what an experience. I, I read that experience there. And that's it then. It was, as always, very good to be with you all. Today's winners, um, Alberta Cooper, it looks like, Alberta Cooper, Alberta Cooper, and Eleanor Fulker. We're going to bring you this evening 
be good to talk to you then. It's matinee up next with Brendan Van Rain and Book Choice will be podcast in a couple of days' time on www.fmr.co.za. Thanks to the terrific team and to Rick Everett, Mawandi Lobi and, of course, the delicious Matabataba Handebi. And from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Book Choice was brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers and we are passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FM.